Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the anime podcast. The biggest romantic event of the year is upon us, in which we lavish our loved ones with chocolates, flowers and other hastily chosen fancies. No, I'm not talking about my birthday next week, though you should remember that on the 20th. Thanks for all the presents in advance. I'm of course talking about Valentine's Day. A tenuous connection, some may argue, but this week we're going to look at Britain's love affair with retirement. Just why are we so in love with retiring? What are the threats to that dream of quitting your job and spending 25 plus years enjoying your freedom and hard one cash and importantly is it sustainable here to discuss the ins and outs of britain's greatest ever romance please put your hands together for tony stenning tony is a former managing director at blackrock where he was head of uk retail he worked there for a period that i would describe as absolutely bloody ages before uh, moving on to tizer where he's the chair of the strategy committee um, Tony, thanks so much for being with us. How are you? Hi, hi, Ollie. Thanks very much for having me. No worries at all. Um, as you're well aware, well, I hope you're aware, nobody comes on the podcast without doing some form of quiz. Uh, it being Valentine's Day, I think you can just about guess what's going to happen next. <laughs> uh, the following five questions are about love. Oh, lovely. My wife will be very interested in the are, answers here. Are you, have you got plans for Valentine's Day? Well, we kind of have, yeah. We're, uh, our, our wedding anniversary is the end of the month. So, um, oh, it's, and it's, thank you. And it's our 20th this year. So, uh, yeah, we're going away. We're actually going to uh, New York this year. So my wife loves, I know, she hasn't been for five years. I haven't been for a while. She loves it. Um, so, so that's what those air miles are for, right? How romantic, <laughs> indeed. Um, question one. Chocolate is said to have been Casanova's favourite de dessert, but to the nearest million, how many heart-shaped chocolate boxes are supposedly sold every year for Valentine's Day? In the UK or in the world? In the world. In, in the, the world. world. In the world. It's Jeremy, Carlson. Jeremy Carlson, indeed. <laughs> Um, cool, nearest million, uh, 250. Down. Oh, way, way down. down. Way oh, okay, down. I've gone way, I've gone way larger. I've gone way larger. Okay, so 50? It's 36. Okay. Or over 36. 36. Um, over 36 million heart-shaped chocolate boxes are sold every year, um, possibly to the same person. Possibly to my wife. Possibly to your <laughs> wife. Uh, perhaps we'll leave that remark there. <laughs> yeah. uh, question two, true or false? In Japan, one custom involves women gifting their partners handmade chocolates, chocolate gifts on Valentine's Day. True or false? Is it the women that lead the way in Japan? True. It is true. Men reciprocate on the following day by supposedly giving gifts that are three times as valuable as the ones they themselves get. Very good. Which is a good way of extracting like value that. from I your like partners, that. is it not? I like that, yeah. Um, My wife three. would like that. You've, well, hang on, where are we at? Where are we at? I'm going to say you've got one right so far. Uh, question three. St. Valentine is obviously the saint most associated with the day of his name, but what else was he a patron saint of? Was it A, beekeepers, B, epilepsy, or C, the plague? Now you'd have thought I'd looked that up, wouldn't you? Thinking that I was coming on here around Valentine's Day. I didn't know. Um, Valentine's. Should we go beekeepers? It's actually a trick question. It's all three. <laughs> oh. He was, uh, when he wasn't championing star-crossed lovers, Valentine had some pretty hefty responsibilities in the beekeeping, epilepsy and plague departments. Uh, thankfully, the last one is sort of uh, a goner because of modern medicine. Um, but yes, it just goes to show that some of the things about Valentine's Day aren't as romantic as you might first think. Uh, question four. Uh, which country issued the world's first rose-scented stamps for Valentine's Day in 2002? And I'll give you a clue. It's in Southeast Asia. Right. Southeast Have you ever been to Southeast Asia? Mm, yeah, but no much, romantic no, trips there. No, You've never no. sent a letter with a stamp on it around no. Valentine's Day. Well, well <laughs> <laughs> not deliberately. Uh, so let's think about it. Southeast Asia. And mm, to be fair, there are lots. There's of places. a lot of places there, aren't there? It's, it's pretty famous. This place. It's, it's famous for one thing in particular, uh, which is uh, men dressed as women. 
Ah, okay. So Thailand. Correct. Right. Thailand is the is the. I've got a story about that, but I won't tell you on, online. That's that something. Sure, about, so. sure. We'll do that uh, after we're off air. Um, another point, Tony. Uh, can you make it three out of five? Uh, I know you're a bit of a historian, Tony. So, which famous king of England declared Valentine's Day a holiday in 1537? Right. So that would have been fifty-seven. Uh, uh, Henry the. Correct. Correct. Yeah, thirty-seven would have been Oh right, okay, so we're going up a long way. Okay, so, uh, so eight. Henry the Eighth, correct. Eight. I'll give you that. I was prevaricating there. Henry the Eighth was obviously the the king most famous for his romances. You could call them romances. Well you could. You could call them something else. Uh, he had a few romances. Perhaps it's best to leave that one there. Uh, Tony, I'm going to give you three out of five. Thank a you. round of applause for you. Well done. Thank you, uh, thank you for being such a good sport. Um, we are here to discuss something else, where, which I think is a bit of a cultural phenomenon, really. I'm, of course, talking about Britain's love affair with retirement. This is something that dominates the tabloid press. It's talked about all the time. It fills all the money pages. Um, question for you. If you could describe the absolutely, currently, perfectly typical vision of retirement in Britain right now, what would it be? What does it look like? What's the phenomenon? So for what people are actually looking for, right? That means, mm. Let me start there. Um, so we actually asked this question. It was a little, it's about a year ago, but it's very, it's still very relevant for this mm. conversation. And despite the fact that two thirds of people are not prepared for retirement in the right way, and we can perhaps cover that in, 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 during the course of this, this podcast, um, that that didn't correspond to how they were thinking of retirement. Seven out of 10 people um, expect to travel. So they expect to be able to travel, do a lot of traveling in retirement. Mm. Three out of 10 expected to seek uh, to help their children financially. Okay. And uh, one in five wanted to pay the mortgage off. Mm. So now clearly that's allied with the whole kind of pension freedoms phenomenon, which is why we're all in the the headlines, et cetera, and why one of the reasons we're talking about it. But that was a very interesting kind of playback from people what they want to get out of retirement those things are not clearly mutually um, exclusive um, but uh, you need a lot of money to be doing all those three things and um, mm. with two-thirds of people not saving enough um, they kind of think they're going to fall back onto that one big asset that typically typically people are retiring now mm. um, have which is their house which so, so um, that has a whole heap of problems um, itself. Of course. We will come on to property in a, in a second. Um, it's interesting that you are identifying perhaps the gaps in people's um, sort of pre- preparations. Um, how do you think, what are, the most, uh, what are the most significant shifting parts at the moment? I mean, we're seeing things like longer working lives, older workers, people going into retirement and coming back out again. I think we all know someone who's done that. What are the most significant sort of moving parts of that uh, vision at the moment. Too. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a great way to put it, actually. I think the whole concept of retirement. Let's this 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 think back. So the current the current concept of retirement. Yeah, you, you get educated when you're young. You work for a period of time, and then you retire for actually quite a long time now because mm. we're still retiring at around the same ages that our parents and even perhaps our grandparents were retiring. Um, the whole whole concept of retirement was a thing invented by Bismarck, right? You said I was a historian. He invented this whole concept mm-hmm. when he created the, the whole sort of new um, kind of German Republic. And it's been added to and, and built upon by all kinds of Western liberal democracies ever since. Now, 
Ian then in the pension. Didn't he, he did, he did indeed, he did indeed. Although to be fair, it wasn't much of a pension. You sure. kind of it was sort of if you actually lived for as long as to, to, to get the pension, you were living longer than the life expectancy um, or it, the, at the time in Germany. So look, very hey, actuarially, convenient. it was very actuarially probably <laughs> correct. Yeah. Um, so to make sure that it was a, a funded way of doing it. But um, look, we. Uh, uh, we, we kind of we are where we are and and to people that's the kind of the mindset that we're in in terms of you're educated your work you retire one thing for sure is that's going to change it is changing you said it yourself people are going into retirement and then coming back they're gliding into retirement perhaps going part-time um, and why not retrain if we're living longer and we are you know one in three of children born today office national statistics will live till they're 100 or beyond so that longevity is inevitably and is incrementally increasing year on year. Um, it was 73 in the UK 20 years ago. It's currently about 80-ish, and in 20 years' time, it's going to be mid-80s, that kind of time, average life expectancy. Yeah. Clearly, there's a, a, a lot of um, a sway around that. So it just means that whole concept of retirement needs to change. And I think if people start thinking of it, and we used to talk about this at BlackRock, in terms of the how do you, when do you become salary independent? Um, rather than this concept of yeah. I'm just retiring. If I can be salary independent, it gives me a lot of options. It might mean that I want to go back and retrain to do something else, which might be a bit more vocational. Um, it might be something I've always wanted to do. Um, it, that those two things might be you know, might marry up and maybe mutually beneficial. But I think you'll see a huge change, as, as we already are seeing in the demographically, of how people regard this thing called retirement. Mm. Do we know, do we have any information whatsoever on whether people are choosing to work longer because they want to or choosing to work longer because they have to? Because I know it's something the government's championing, I mean, at, albeit in the form of sort of small initiatives here and there. You know, we had Ros Altman with her Longer Working Lives initiative, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we at with that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I spoke with Ros and Sally Greengross as well. There's, mm. a, there's a whole heap of, you know, in the, in the um, in, in that sphere, and there is a, there are undeniably a portion of society that would like to work longer or differently, right? Mm -hmm. So aren't necessarily just cutting themselves off at a certain time frame. They still feel productive. They still feel they have things to add to society, and most importantly, they've got a huge amount of experience. And as a historian, I think there's a, too much of history or experience of uh, uh, muscle memory is lost. Um, mm -hmm. We don't look back. Um, um, about the things that can and, and instill in us for, for the future. So I think that's a, that's a huge positive. On the other side, you're right, there's a whole bunch of people though that they, if they might want to, but they can't, or they're actually forced to because of their situation that they find themselves in. And they're, they're the people, the more vulnerable parts of society that we need to work out how we help them in a way that facilitates them be having a choice mm. that so it's not they're not forced into doing it so that is a combination of some form of support but it's also can we give them greater sort of education around saving a bit earlier a little bit more often using that time to their advantage get it there's huge challenges around people's budgets household budgets but if we can if we can think more holistically about the problem then we might be able to close that gap. But you're absolutely right. There are some that are f will have to because there's no other way because they haven't prepared for it. That gets to the crux of this. Do we Are we in love with pensions or not? And there's those that have been in love with pensions for a while, have saved, like what we used to call them smart investors, um, because they didn't actually have that many more assets, but the way that they went about their lives was just much, much more informed. Mm, okay. 
Where are we at on education? I mean, that's a really interesting point. You know, I mean, it strikes me that you could say that uh, a lot of sort of retirement assets, a lot of sort of money management is effectively being privatised. You know, the individuals are bearing the risk much more than they were before. I mean, is is doesn't strike me that there's enough education out there for people to necessarily make informed choices. Obviously, financial advisors, our audience, have a role to play in perhaps the medium to high net worth market. But for your kind of middle Britain people who for what for whatever reason they may feel uneasy about going to see a financial advisor or they don't feel like they have the resources to i mean what is there out there other than you know taking best guess looking on the internet and trusting the mate in the pub facetiously that's a facetious question <laughs> to be honest though ollie it's not really and i i have a there's a huge amount of um there's a huge amount of goodwill in the advice um community that want to help people here but mm. they're kind of not allowed because in many respects because the it's moment regulated. It's regulated. As soon as you start to make some kind of recommendation, it's regulated. You've got to do all of your KYC and documentation and documented, etc. And there's a huge amount of, therefore, then cost that comes around that. The rules of thumb, helping people. You know, when we buy things now online, it's like people like you. Now, I know that won't necessarily apply in all circumstances, but there must be better ways of guiding people to. And, you know, we've got this now single financial guidance body. Mm. There is a huge area here, I think, of being able to give some, I say, rules of thumb about what what is kind of what good looks like, mm. potentially looks like for somebody like you. Um, and you know, it ties where we've been working uh, with KPMG to develop a savings index to to enable that kind of evaluation of someone like you who earns this kind of money, lives in this kind of area, has this type of savings, typically mm. might have these types of investments, might have this much debt. Does that look like you or not? So and profiling. Could, could enable you to sort of look at people like you yeah. to then go, well, oh, actually, what, what, why are they doing something differently? Yeah. Might that prompt, it might, it won't necessarily, but it might prompt you to think about things differently. Are ties are engaging with DWP? I mean, the SFGB, uh, I mean, it's difficult as a journalist to get a proper handle on who's actually in charge of this. I mean, every time you talk about SFGB to DWP, they're sort of saying, oh, this is a separate thing. Um, are you, it's ties are engaged on this. I mean, uh, how uh, how far along the, in the process of developing the SFGB are we? Do you think? Yeah. So so yes, we are. Um, and we we look at this as uh, I said earlier, sort of holistically. It's about giving people greater transparency and sight of what their balance sheet might look like. So that dashboard. So yes. that and but it can't just be about your pensions. It must be a savings and investment dashboard. We would argue. Mm. So just have everything on there. Potentially even debt. That would be quite nice, wouldn't it? So you can look on the left-hand side and the right-hand side. I'm not Those... sure how I'd, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> but, 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 you know, it, but it's quite interesting because if you've got a small, some money, sometimes, depending on where you are, it yeah. might be better to, to pay off on that right-hand side, that debt balance, pay some of that down rather than actually yeah. invest for you. And that was the, that, those smart investors that I mentioned earlier. That's what we found. They were not just saving a little bit more and a little bit earlier and a little bit more and often, sort of little and often, that type of, uh, on the on the left-hand side, let's say, of the balance sheet. But on the right-hand side, they were also, when they could and when it was relevant, they would pay they had less debt. They would pay it down. They didn't earn more. Their assets were pretty comparable to the, to the average, but yeah. they were just being a bit more engaged in how they, they, they ran their lives. So I think if you can get a, a holistic view, then you get guidance to override that. So proper guidance that we can work with, that give people rules of thumb and can be signposted to take, have 
some recommendations, not, not, not necessarily personal ones. Once you start having a personal recommendation, then you get into the, the, the advice sphere. Yeah, sure. Then you, you start to, I think, come up with something that might work kind of holistically. If you ally that with a digital ID that enables people so that we can KYC people, you can let people into your own sort of da data vault, if you like, selectively. Mm -hmm. You think on a holistic solution that works, I think, for most people in a very cost-efficient, a cost-effective yeah, way that, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Let's talk about property because I think property property is a great British love affair. I mean, if, if you're going to make it about anything else other than retirement, this podcast, then it would be about property. We are absolutely obsessed with the idea of property ownership in this country in a way that, you know, other European countries just aren't. You know, I lived in Germany for a year. And, um, you know, they're just, they're just, it, it's a completely different culture. I mean, property prices in many places in Germany are going up. That's a sort of similar story. They're behind, they're behind us, but going perhaps in the same direction. Um, but we are absolutely obsessed with property. Um, why is it that we're so obsessed with houses, do you think? And, and I have a couple of follow-up questions that relate to retirement. But first of all, why are we obsessed with property? Kind of gets back to that Englishman's house is his castle kind of stuff, right? Do you think? Um, I think, well, why are we so different? Than, than those other countries. What has kind of evolved over time is that it, it, it has to be from, when I go right back in time, where you, you, where you look how the economy evolved from serfdom and everything, it's about I want my little plot, my, whether it was my little plot that I worked on um, to, to provide the, the, you know, the, my, the, the food for my family, etc. to then, okay, I don't need to do that necessarily now because we're evolving as an economy and I'm gonna do this bit over here. So. But I'd still like my own property. That's my house. That's something that I can tangibly feel, touch, smell. Um, it's it's a store of wealth that I can see. That That is mine. Um, this is an unscientific question, but I mean, I often wonder whether it's something to do with, you know, Britain's, England's very unique sort of aristocratic, monarchical history, which is built on all of these stories about palaces, castles, as you say, but like places of amazing wealth and uh, opulence. And somehow the, I don't know, the psyche to do with property and land has traveled down the years to give us this sort of obsession with uh, ownership. No. I, I think you're right. I think, you know, it was that, that kind of, that move, that migration from being serfs to I now, I am a, I'm a citizen. I want to be part of that landowning yeah. society. And let's face it, before, but go back in the, it's not that long ago, you know, we're, we're celebrating 100 years of women's suffrage you know, last year. It, it wasn't that long ago when you couldn't vote unless you actually owned property, yeah. you owned land. So yeah. I think there was, there's always that kind of, the two were in kind of an extricable link. Like to, to own some land meant that you were part of, or deemed to be part of society. Well, I hope one day I'll get into that unique sort of group of people. Um, one of the things that's come up with property in the last couple of years is equity release. I mean, people releasing money from, from the value of their houses. Um, I have concerns about equity release, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, it, is it a sort of dangerous uh, short-term uh, idea, or is it kind of, is it sustainable as a sort of a, a kind of mainstay of retirement income, do you think? This is a really interesting point, Ollie. Um, a lot of people look at that store of wealth and say, I'm going to fall back in onto that. I mean, literally one in, five, one in four were saying, I, I'm going to use that as, yeah. as to top up my pension. In fact, therefore, I will downsize. Yeah. But 
it's really hard. It's almost like blind luck. You're trusting into blind luck when you do downsides. There isn't really any advice available to you for holistically around my, uh, you know, what area of the country you're going to live in, what about the fam- family uh, um, implications of doing that, etc., etc. It's not just a financial conversation, right? So, um, and, dis- and decision. Plus, are there the kinds of places that will enable you to crystallise £100,000? And that's what most people were hoping to crystallise. Sure. But actually, outside of this bubble of the southeast of England, crystallising anything like £100,000 to £150,000 from properties is quite an ask potentially so if you're going to do that um, even if let's say let's just go for it I'm going to crystallize a hundred thousand pounds for my pension uh, for my pension mm. um, that's going to get you somewhere in the region of five thousand pounds a year mm. to supplement your income is I'm not sure and we know that because they were expecting it to they they, they reckon their, their shortfall was about eleven and a half thousand pounds yeah but they thought that would be topped up by their pension. Uh, sorry, yeah. by their by their property. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's this mismatch from what what hundred thousand pounds would get me. We get back to the education point. So um, and uh, that's a real challenge, particularly around how do you then crystallise that value so I can downsize, move, or equity release. Now, lots of people said that they. This is really interesting that they thought they they um, understood it, um, but overwhelmingly they didn't like it, they didn't want want to use it. So they said they understood it, but then um, we, we actually got less than 10% of the questions correctly answered about some really basic facts about equity release. Now that is interesting. Um, we asked we asked the, the over a thousand people about it. Um, and the, yeah, eight out of 10 said they were aware of it, two thirds claimed to understand it, yeah, less than 10%, literally 10% could answer some very basic questions about it. Mm. Um, and they were very much against it. Um, about using it, um, sort of think seven, seven out of ten didn't want to. Is it because they're scared of a sort of you know a very certain type of indebtedness that could affect them in their later years? Yeah, and I think you've had quite a bit of bad press perhaps about it in the past. There've been a lot of high-profile cases of people, you know, perhaps doing it in appropriate times, inappropriate rates, um, yeah. then perhaps taking it out, and then unfortunately passing quite quickly then on and then losing a huge amount of that, yeah, that sure. potential equity um, that they could have passed on. Um, so you know, one of the things that we've, we've been looking at and again in trying and engaging with DWP and, and others around this is lifetime mortgages for instance, could you do it that way? Yeah. There are, and, and again getting back to your, your audience, you know, the advisors, you've got a lot of advisors out there, sort of 5,000 that are um, we believe that have the relevant qualifications, but only 400 of the permissions from the FCA to give it around this very specific type. So again, there's a potential there's a market. There's a potential market, I think, there because it could be a way of marrying it up, that balance sheet, left mm. and right, as I was talking about earlier. But at the moment, the only way that you can either do that is to sell it or if I'm going to stay in it, yeah. uh, it's quite a costly and perhaps I don't really understand this thing that I'm aware of. Um, that those two things don't necessarily go sit well to me. Sure. One more question on property. Um, hypothetically, Tony, you're in the pub. You're on holiday. I don't know where, where you are. You're in the Brecon Beacons in Wales. You're enjoying your pint, and uh, someone says, you know, oh, that's Tony Stunning. Oh, I know Tony. He used to work at Blackrock. I've seen him in all of all these stories. And uh, <laughs> and uh, he goes up to you and he says, you know, I'm trying to decide. Should I should I buy a house or should I get a pension? What do you say? <laughs> because that's the question that's in all the money pages. You know, is is property value in the pension? I mean, it strikes me that there's just this myth that property value is always just going to go up. 
I mean, there's, there's something that's going to happen there at some point. Yeah, you know, well, that bubble's going to burst. It's basic economics, right, Ollie? We haven't been building enough houses for a quite quite a period of time. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you don't have as much supply, then then you've got quite a lot of demand for those properties. Prices go up, and that has that's what we've seen over a very long period of time. But interestingly, if you go back again in history, this period post-war, um, post-Second World War to, mm -hmm. to now, has been quite a unique period of time with house prices almost inexorably going from bottom left to top right, kind of increasing year on year. They haven't typically done that in the past because population perhaps growth has been met by housing growth at the same time. So house prices could alternate between rising and falling if you were purchasing and selling. And if you have a house that is old enough and go back and look at it, I imagine that's pretty much, that will be a fairly standard kind of process until probably the last two or three people that have owned that property where it's been worth more each time that they purchased it. Mm. Um, and I think this this period of time, when we look back over the longer um, period, we'll, we're, we'll look at it and go, wow, that really was quite an extraordinary yeah, period yeah. of time. So. To answer your question though, over that pint, um, might I get another pint, um, obviously to, to kind of mull over that one, but because um, uh, there are good pints there. Um, but we, we would, I, I personally would say, why, just thinking about it with, you know, from a portfolio perspective and an investment perspective, why would you put all your eggs in one basket? Um, you buy a property that, because it's always been gone up in this particular area of London, well, it might not do that going forward, right? So. Um, and yes, whilst we've had this incredible growth of prices in the south of England, go back 100, 120 years, actually, there was a big growth in prices in the north of England when we had massive manufacturing yeah. um, um, growth and industrialization. So, Sure. Let's move on to the, the big one. I mean, this is, this is the, the thing that's changed the face of uh, sort of retirement policy is pension freedom. Um, broadly speaking, I mean, how significant do you think the Pension Freedoms Initiative has been in changing the face of British retirement? Huge, um, in, in a word. Um, and why would I say that? <clears throat> it's because it's, it's kind of taken the P word um, out of the kind of don't ever talk about it, don't mention it, mm. um, into something that is a bit more tangible. There are good and, good and bad reasons, <laughs> good and bad outcomes from that, clearly. But it means that now people talk about their their pot, whereas mm. I think back in, if you go back a few years, 10, 15 years, it was this pension thing. I was, because it was um, a concept really, it was a DB scheme typically that paid you an outcome based yeah. on average or final salary. You didn't really know what was in it. Yeah. You didn't really care what was in it, provided your company didn't go bust. Um, uh, then it's kind of, as, as people have had to take on more individual responsibility, we call it now defined contribution, but you know you, yourself. So you're taking on more investment risk. What that did overnight was kind of suddenly empower you as an individual to make some decisions about when you want to access it mm. and how you access it, which is is good because it does get people to talk about pensions. And anything that gets people to talk about their investments and pensions, I think, is personally a good thing. Yeah. But it has some clear um, implications. Sure. And we'll come on to those. I mean, it strikes me that, I mean, some of the sort of the groundwork for the legislation on that was, it was kind of there until 2011-ish, right? Um, 
But we know that you know people like BlackRock. We spoke about BlackRock. They you know they seem to benefit hugely from you know potentially this lib complete liberation of money. And I'm sure there are other asset asset managers too. Do you know whether you know BlackRock was pushing for this? You know, after 2011, was was there were there lobbying efforts? Was there some sort of industry consensus on this being a good thing, or was this literally something that was dreamt up in the half government? You know, and then sort of suggested on the sly, as you know, as part of some sort of quiet consultation before it was unleashed in a sort of shock move? Well, I think, I think to sort of answer that question, you've only, you only had to go back and watch the video of the then pension minister's face yes. when it was announced. Yes, I mean, he obviously claims, I should say, hi, Steve. Uh, <laughs> he obviously claims to have known about it, but uh, there are, that, that's potentially a sort of revisionist But perhaps, because he, he did look rather surprised when it was announced. Well, there's a moment when Nick Clegg looks over on the front bench and goes, Really? Mm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there was quite. A, it looked like quite a surprise, and 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 I have to say, clearly, as an industry, not necessarily BlackRock, but as an industry, we were calling for. At the one, at the one hand, people had been taking on more responsibility for themselves, but sure. they hadn't necessarily been. That hadn't been met by greater kind of accessibility mm. or or understanding, okay. and and so there needed to be some kind of greater. I think, you know. I think greater um, ability as an individual to be able to access your 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 pots, but w- were we specifically asking anyone asking for that? I personally, from BlackRock's perspective, I know no, um, but uh, from a from a um, from a government perspective, it makes sense from a, an ideological mm-hmm. giving more responsibility and access to an individual. Um, what was your reaction when you first heard that announcement? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Yeah, you haven't, Ollie. Actually, I, I was I was surprised, but I was also pleased that in in mm. some respects, in some respects, um, I said clearly, and I, I was on record at the time saying clearly, the devil be in the detail here, and it'd be about how we help people navigate these new freedoms. Mm. Anything that gives people more access, more freedom, more ability to talk about it, more willingness to talk about their pension pots and what they've saved, what they haven't saved was a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I genuinely, I do stand, stand by that, but it absolutely needed to be aligned with, got to help people understand what this new responsibility is. Yeah. That this isn't just free money, this is supposed to last you for your lifetime. So, mm. you, know, to, you know, Steve, as he said at the time, and he misquoted again, so we were speaking about him, about the Lamborghini bit. Um, <laughs> but, it, we, you know, it, it, it was, making sure people don't just go, well, I've got that small pot over there, let's take that out and let's just buy some kind of car. It wouldn't be a Lamborghini given the average size of pension pots. But, sure. um, but it was giving people that, um, that, that, greater, that greater flexibility, I think, was a, was a good thing. Just looking at the figures, I mean, the latest figures from our sort of website and from stories we've done on this on withdrawals from under the pension freedoms from uh, pension funds. So this was November 2018, £23 billion in withdrawals. I mean, that, you know, that's the size of an economic stimulus package. Do, do we know how this money is being spent? You know, how is that being used? It was, very, it was being used for a number of um, areas. <clears throat> it was to, I mentioned one before earlier, um, paying off mortgages so literally yeah. so let's pay that debt down and in some circumstances say getting rid of that that debt on your right hand side of your balance sheet it's, we call it. it's a pretty sensible thing yeah. to do right so if you had a small pot and you could use it to do that they were doing it some were using it for also house improvements because they were going to stay in that property for a longer period of time okay some were using it for a little bit more instant gratification, some holidays holiday of a lifetime I've worked very hard to want to enjoy it that's all very logical and I understand that. The bits I didn't quite understand 
uh, which some people were doing, was taking money out of their pension because it's my money now, and then putting it into bank account. And ah, not, not spending it. Mm, so they were, they were, they were crystallising it. So yes. that would be part of your drawdown, 23 billion that's been taken out, but they weren't spending it. Mm. But they were putting it in the bank account because it was, uh, there it is. That, it, you've told me it's my money. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of this thing, this pension thing, not sure it is. Yeah. I can withdraw it and deposit it into is my bank account. Is that an acceptable outcome? I mean, Tom McPhail wrote sort of an interesting article for us where he was saying, you know, it's not going to be the best outcome in all scenarios, but sometimes it's okay that people have a lot of money in cash. It, I mean, is it acceptable to look at the, you know, to look at this space after this sort of floodgates moment and see people holding um, that amount of money in a bank account that's accruing virtually nothing? Well, I mentioned those smart in, those smart savers that we said earlier, right? That mm. even they, right? That even they held fifty. 1% of their wealth in cash okay. versus um, the average Brit, which is about two thirds, right? So even they were holding more cash. I, I, I do understand where Tom was coming from, partly. Mm. Um, you clearly need to hold some cash because there are things that go wrong. I was chatting to actually um, uh, someone today that, that had to go into the, the garage and they had three t- new tires on the car. You know, it's a couple hundred quid. Yeah, it's, sure. you know, that's, was he expecting it? No. Got to find that from somewhere, right? So the ability, particularly in perhaps later life, to have some money to, to meet some of those unexpected expenses is a good idea. That is a really good idea. Having a lot of money, if you're taking it all out of a pension that is still accumulating in a very tax efficient way for you and to then perhaps crystallize it in a not necessarily a tax efficient way, so you might pay more tax than you otherwise should have because mm, yes. you've done it in one year rather than this. stagger it, yes. um, is not necessarily a good outcome for you. So, uh, and then not getting it invested perhaps via an ISA for you, um, yeah. again, may not give you the best outcome. I do, I do understand where Tom is coming though. Mm. I mean, you speak about overtaxation. I mean, HMRC is now overtax savers by over 400 million. I mean, it, regardless of whether people are spending money on Lamborghinis or not, I mean, that says a lot about what people are willing to go through to get their hands on their cash. Well, it, it goes from this untangible pot to this tangible pot to say whether you're just going to stick it in the bank account. You see people were sitting there saying, you're saying it was mine. Well, actually it is mine. Look, it's in my bank account. Yes, however much um, it is. However much that is. And I, I said at the time that I was concerned that people would pay too much tax. And I said, please, please, please please speak to an advisor and get some advice about whether, because it would be so worth your while to perhaps stagger those sure. those those redemptions out of that pot, mm-hmm. rather than just writing out a check for to the government, which it kind of, it's really, this is a really interesting psychological point. Um, people were saying, I don't want to pay for advice. Advice is far too expensive. And yet when you look at what they were potentially paying, to overpaying in tax yeah. to the exchequer, for nothing yeah. other than I've now got access to my money. You'll still get access to your money. We just might stagger it for you so yeah. that we, you pay, yes, you pay for your advisor's cost, but actually you're still pounds better off in your pocket because mm. you haven't paid as much tax to the, to the exchequer, which you didn't need to do. Mm. Um, this isn't avoiding tax. This is just a, a not paying unnecessary tax um, because you were not a higher or additional rate taxpayer. But because you took out uh, those amounts that may have pushed you into those bands. Obviously, this was going to have a huge uh, behavioural impact on, on you know, what people were doing with their money. I mean, it was announced in 2014, implemented in April 2015 on time. I mean, do you have a sense of how long it's going to take for that kind of initial wave of behavioural impact to 
work through the system. I mean, where are we at on that journey? Because it strikes me, you know, that money's going to end up somewhere. At some point, we're going to see withdrawals, you know, drop off. Maybe, maybe that coincides with further decline of DB. Maybe, it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we at there in terms of riding out that wave? Yeah, it, it, we are, I would say we are, we're, we're probably towards the end of the beginning. To, okay. um, uh, you know, to quote again from, from history, but um, we're certainly, I don't think we're near the beginning of the end yet. Um, okay. There was still quite a chunk of money that had been built up into smallish DC pots, and, and that's where people had been taking them out and perhaps crystallizing them because they hadn't consolidated. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, ever hopeful, glass half full, that with a pension savings investments dashboard where people get more understanding of those pots and where they are and they can consolidate them yeah. um, that they they may be inclined to sort of not to not to um, not to be taking them them out those small amounts um, sure um, obviously uh, that's good sort of plug for the dashboard we have a podcast on that too if you haven't listened to it check it out it's on SoundCloud it's on our website um, featuring Darren Philp uh, from Smart Pension uh, it's a bumper hour about the dashboard which I know is everyone's cup of tea um, DB and DC just while you mentioned DB and DC, I mean, we've talked about unintended consequences of yeah. pensions freedoms. And one of the big phenomena that's wrapped up in pension freedom is this sort of DB transfer wave. And we've seen some pretty, pretty bloody terrible things happen to certain people's money uh, with some pretty rogue elements at work. Granted, probably happening within a minority, but as we all know, it's the worst stories that make the biggest noise. Um, are we going to look back on that and feel a certain degree of shame that we didn't do enough to protect those steel workers or those people that just they weren't in a position to understand? You know, your listeners, your listeners will be um, as disappointed as you and I about this, I think, to be perfectly honest, Ollie. You know, there are, you're right, it's always the, those, and rightly so, because those people were very badly advised in many circumstances. In many circumstances, this isn't looking in the rearview mirror. This was looking in the, out the front mirror and, and any mirror. Then people should have understood that that was not right for them. Um, and particularly, what that, that money was then subsequently invested in, mm. invested in quotes, yeah. in um, totally inappropriate. And there are, I'm afraid, those bad those bad apples will always, unfortunately, seem to, whenever there's an opportunity, swarm to it. Mm. There's a mixed horrible metaphor there, if uh, bad apples can swarm. But, <laughs> um, but, but nevertheless, you, you know, and, and I've spoken to so many, as I'm sure, you, and I know you have, Ollie, that people are they were angry that that was allowed to, to happen. Um, and this gets back to that, can you put in more safeguards to help people um, kind of help themselves. Um, it's, this can't be nanny state because we've, on the one hand, given them freedoms to make some choices. But if you're making a fundamental decision like that, where I am moving out of yes. a supposedly protected environment, um, there, there has to be a better way to, particularly if you're in that vulnerable kind of area of society. So we have an invitation for you, Tony. I mean, it, it, I'm reminded at this point of the interview I did with Steve Gross, former um, CEO of Partnership last year, he came in and, and gave us a, an exclusive interview about his experience of what it was like in the days after the pension freedoms and how they were going to respond to that. Um, and he said that the, the policy was uh, like, and I think he said this in his own words, uh, you know, opening the gate to the bear enclosure. Um, I have, we have an idea, which is that we might well, in the next sort of few weeks, we put pension freedoms on trial. And the question is, 
First of all, would you like to come to our mock trial, which we may do as a podcast? Yeah, it sounds you like get fun. some people faces across the retirement industry to weigh up, you know, whether this has broadly been good, broadly been bad. But question for you is, are you on the defence or are you on the prosecution? Oh, this one? that's a great question. Um, <laughs> oh, you got me there, Ollie. Uh, who would I defend it? Um, I think on balance, I would probably defend it. Okay. Um, probably. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be able to completely defend everything, but I would be, yeah, on balance, I think, yeah. How interesting. Um, and final question for you, it's a fun question. CityWire turns 20 this year mm. in August, August 1999, it was incorporated as a company. Um, what were you doing in 1999? And part two of that question, what do you think retirement will look like 20 years from now? Right, in 1999, I was in the industry. I was just about to join. Um, as uh, I think you said it earlier, I was, I've, I've been at BlackRock well, for millennium or a bloody long time. Um, so uh, yeah, I was just about to join. Um, I had been a private private client, um, uh, fund manager, and economist, and been that sort of side of the fence, and working directly with as your as your as your audience does with with real people, um, and running and managing their their wealth for them, and. I got involved with various um, fund-based solutions. We particularly we had um, onshore vehicles, you know, UK funds. Um, in one, my I've only worked three companies, um, uh, and in the second one, um, Henderson Crossway, which many of your people might remember, I was working there at the time in '99. Um, they were um, uh, they had a doubling fund range at, uh, at the time, so I was, you know, was looking looking at those. So that got me interested in funds, and then I joined Mercury and the rest of history, as I say. Mm. But specifically in 1999, what was I doing? Getting married. Um, oh, really? So I said, oh, this is my of 20th course. anniversary, so I got married in the February of, uh, of, 19, uh, of 99, and um, and uh, and then ever since, life has been full of unicorns and honey. Um. <laughs> the official story goes. Well, we know it's not that, but, uh, but uh, that's, that's a lovely story. <laughs> well, it's Valentine's. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, but, but, you know, yeah, so, and it, but 20 years ago, so the life expectancy in the UK, so when, when, I, got, when I got married, was um, sort of mid-70s, 77. Mm. So you were, if you retired at the state pension age at 65, let's say, for, for ladies 60, you had um, 15, 10 years of retirement. Now, yeah. that's, that's changed now. It's now 15, perhaps 20 years of, of, of retirement if you, re, if you retire, and lots of people want to retire early. Mm. Um, they sort of almost regard that as, as, as failure of retiring at the state pension age, which is... Perhaps that's a good segue onto the second part of that question then. So in 20 years' time, I mean, are we going to have a state pension, do you think, realistically? I mean, it's the mainstay of many people's retirement income. Well, I think until, until we have a solution that helps those, those vulnerable in society, and there are a big swathe, you know, there are... Um, what is a statistic? It is forty uh, percent of uh, the the bottom forty percent. I've got the number here somewhere. Desperately looking for it. Um, uh, uh, you've got I've got less than um, the, the amount of wealth in the society. I even underlined it because I thought I might even talk about that. And look at that. I can't find it. Doesn't matter. Um, the the bottom the bottom forty percent of uh, of society got less than ten percent of the, the wealth of, of the country. Mm. And. Uh, so we need to help those people and we need to help them help themselves. So some form of state help, state-sponsored help, and I think Clue is probably where I'm, I would suggest needs to be there. I wrote a blog on this um, about 18 months ago um, that I think that you could reimagine um, how state 
and indeed pensions um, operate, that we've always had these unfunded things that get funded through taxation, etc. Well, if you could actually fund it up front, you can, as, as, as people are born, you use that power of compounding, that eighth wonder of the world, and you give them a small amount of money yeah. in lieu of their potential state pension benefits. It worked out that it was about £2,000 per person, um, and uh, actually £1,000, I think it was, per person, and then you can compound that up over 70 years. It would give you a comparable mm -hmm. amount to the current sort of triple locks um, pension. Mm -hmm. um, now, trouble is, though, that means that would require a government to add to their current liability by, let's say, 100,000 or so birthal that we have each year. Yeah, it's, you know, there's about a million, billion, billion and a half, two billion that needs to be yeah. added to that, that debt. Um, um, but it would solve, potentially, over the longer term, this unfunded pension crisis that we have, in the 110 billion and growing um, um, of, of, of state pension um, liabilities, uh, to, to kind of gradually going away. Um, creating our own sovereign wealth funds to build our own infrastructure projects. But mm. um, Reassuring, I think, just as a final word, that uh, your vision of the next sort of 20 years doesn't include the idea of pensions being turned into ISAs. Uh, absolutely bonkers, listeners. Completely bonkers. I hope you agree, Tony. I trust you do agree. Do. You do agree. Well, what a salient point on which to end. Um, my thanks to you, Tony, for answering my questions. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been a real pleasure having you. Um, thanks for being such a good sport with the quiz, too. Did very well. Join us again next time for another episode. Uh, but in the meantime, please do subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy listening and leave us a lovely review on iTunes if you're feeling generous. Next week we'll be looking at the thorny issue of vulnerable clients but until then it's thanks and goodbye.